Hi, this is Nikki Belmonte, the new executive director of the American Birding Association, and I'm so excited to be this organization's new leader. I look forward to growing our community and inviting people from all walks of life to enjoy and protect wild birds. Today, I'm asking you to support our nesting season appeal and help us inspire our youth to discover the joy of birding and the beauty of nature. You can donate online at aba.org slash appeal or call us at 800-850-2473. Thank you for your support. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. I am the host of this show, and I am sorry to say I have a little bit of bad news to share about friends of the show, bird celebrities, and urban piping plovers, Monty and Rose, the famous plovers of Chicago's Montrose Beach. And just as an aside, I do want to note that um, it took me an embarrassingly long amount of time to realize that they were called Monty and Rose because they were on Montrose Beach. Go figure. Anyway, it had been a bit of a roller coaster year with Monty and Rose. Their arrival in 2019 on the beach of Montrose caused a stir. The successful nesting attempt that summer was the first in Chicago since 1948. The Great Lakes nesting population of piping plovers is one of the more endangered bird populations in North America. But it has been increasing in recent years due to the diligent efforts of many conservationists from a number of agencies and organizations. And, you know, though birders certainly recognize the significance of all that, it was news to many Chicago residents who maybe never heard of piping plovers, but who quickly took to the story. Monty and Rose became local celebrities. They became movie stars of a sort, thanks to a a local documentary, and it even helped to stop an EDM music festival on the beach, which I think we can all agree was a little bit of a blessing. We are eternally in their debt. This year, however, got off to a rough start. Uh, Monty arrived without Rose, and a few weeks into his stay was looking pretty rough. In the middle of May, one of the plover watchers observed him breathing heavily, eventually collapsing and dying. The cause of death is unknown, but That is nature for you. Birds live on a razor's edge, and close attention to any individual will probably make that truth evident. Uh, I might lose a few of you by saying this, but generally speaking, I'm not a huge fan of naming birds like this. Maybe that's just me. I'm, I'm a cynical and callous individual, but I do have to acknowledge that these two birds probably did as much for awareness of the Great Lakes piping plovers as literally any effort by organizations to specifically do so. It's funny, you know, when it comes to bird conservation, sometimes you just need some serendipity. You need a story to tell. And man, Money and Rose, they told a pretty compelling story. And the fact that they fledged seven chicks from their three years on Montrose Beach is pretty exceptional. It shows that their time in Chicago had not just an outreach impact, but an actual real quantitative impact on the population from a purely detached conservation perspective. Maybe the perspective I prefer as well. Anyway, here's some additional good news that came out from the sad news of Monty's death and probably Rose's as well, as she never made it up to Chicago. One thing that they did establish was that the beach at Montrose was a good place for nesting piping plovers. Kudos to the managers of that of that place. Um, which probably meant that it would not be plover-free for long. And that did turn out to be the case, 
as of Memorial Day weekend, the beach at Montrose is hosting another plover, one of Monty and Rose's offspring from 2021, a male named Imani back at his parents' house after a tour of the Western Great Lakes. Who among us? If a female shows up, and who knows, it, it might, then we're starting this whole thing all over again with another generation of piping plovers. And that, that might even be a better story. So apologies to EDM festival goers. It, it might be a while before you get the beach back. On the show this week, we always talk a little bit about vagrants in every episode, but let's really lean into it. Alex Lees is a researcher in the UK. He's the author of a new title from our friends at Princeton, Vagrancy in Birds. We talk hows, whys, and wows of unexpected bird movements around the world. That's after this week's newest rare birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of May 2022. One first record to report this week from Kentucky, where a brown booby on Lake Malone in Camden County is yet another weird inland record of this ostensibly pelagic species. But as we know, brown boobies more than any other sulid have a tendency to show up well inland for reasons that are not at all clear. Notably, this is apparently not the same bird that represented Missouri's second record of the species from earlier this month. Both birds were seen concurrently. So there are two brown boobies tooling around the Mississippi-Ohio River systems. We'll go down to Florida, where Caribbean flycatchers are highlights in the southern part of the state. At least three Lasagras flycatchers have been discovered in Miami-Dade and Monroe counties in recent weeks. But the most exciting find was a Cuban peewee on Key West and Monroe County. This is about the sixth or so record of this species in the ABA area, all as you'd expect from South Florida. This is a mostly resident species from Cuba, but the appearance of past records in Florida, mostly in the spring and fall, does suggest some seasonal movement that is heretofore unknown. And to the opposite corner of the ABA area, to Utqiagvik, Alaska, where rare thrushes are, well, I can't really say they're growing on trees because there aren't really any trees up there, but they are prevalent. A red wing, yet another Spotted, highly migratory turtus thrush was seen there over Memorial Day weekend a few days after the field fair. What could possibly be next? Those are the rarities for the week, but for the full accounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. Finding birds in places where you shouldn't expect to find them is certainly one of the more exciting aspects of birding. In fact, it might well be the reason for the American Birding Association's very existence. The unpredictability, the excitement, the community that builds around these sort of birds are certainly appealing, even if the mechanisms that bring them to these places are still uh, frequently unknown. My guest, Alex Lees, is making a real effort to fill in those gaps. He's a senior researcher at Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK, and along with James Gilroy, the author of Vagrancy in Birds, which came out earlier this year from Princeton University Press. He joins me to talk about this ever-fascinating topic. Welcome, Alex. Okay, thank you, and thanks for the invitation, Nate. Yeah. Um, do you recall your very first experience with what you would consider a vagrant? Uh, I do, I guess. I mean, I guess this comes back to what how we define a vagrant, right? Right, so perhaps, yeah, that's, that's true. Perhaps Rynek, which is uh, technically a scarce migrant on the, on the English mm -hmm. East Coast, but it, it ceased to be a breeding species uh, in the UK sort of 
around the time I started birding in the, in sort of in, in the sort of mid 80s or late 80s. And when I first saw one, it was a, a scarce migrant. I guess pectoral sandpiper around the same time, 1988, at one of the most famous bird reserves in Clyde. Also nominally a vagrant, but perhaps also a scarce migrant. We've even written papers on that, whether or not there are some birds plying a, a different migration route for those. So, uh, yeah, I guess any number of um, species sort of from my early years. I remember, you know, seeing the second British redneck stint in 1992 as well, which is one of the, the rarest birds I think I saw when I was little, for instance. But <laughs> certainly childhood spent chasing lots of rare birds as well. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the idea of vagrancy is such a, a big part of hobby birders as well. How do you think it sort of fits in with... Um the sort of academic study of where birds are going and why they're going, why they're going places? Um, so what we talk about in the book is the fact that vagrancy as a phenomenon mm -hmm. uh, is poorly studied. So we have quite a lot of sort of information, well, not quite a lot, in fact, a huge amount of information about the pattern, you know, where right. birds show up in space and time, but a lot less about the process, this idea about what underpins that. Uh, and because historically, you know, a lot of these data sets weren't in the same place or, or we didn't have access to all these ancillary data sets we do now in terms of, of, of climate and, and change and knowledge mm, of species, mm -hmm. life histories. You know, people haven't really started been putting together a lot of these different data sets uh, together. But there's been a rush of sort of papers recently and that sort of triggered a sort of renewed interest in, in vagrancy as a, a biological phenomenon of importance for, you know, colonisation of, of new areas, for instance. I mean... If you think about it, about 10% of the world's avifauna is found on oceanic islands. And if there was no right. vagrancy, there would be no birds and islands there. because right. they'd have to get there to become, to speciate. I mean, that's a vagrancy event is potentially a precursor to the evolution of new species, for instance. Yeah. So why do you believe that birds do this? Why do they frequently turn up in places where you wouldn't expect them? Well, for lots of reasons, right? And um, in mm -hmm. the book, we sort of try and split uh, them up into two sort of main categories. And we talk about uh, endogenous, which is like an internal cause. So we know that birds have, you know, various sort of aspects. The navigatory apparatus could potentially go wrong. So birds use different compasses to navigate. And they have sort of backup compasses. So think about star compass or... Um, uh, sun compass, for instance, or magnetic compass, and, and any of these any of these mechanisms can go wrong or be obscured or, or interfered with because of external circumstances or whatever. So that will be sort of an internal problem in navigation apparatus. And then we have external causes, for instance, like the weather, which is often the sort of default. People right. think about why birds show up being blown off course, etc. Or even you know humans literally moving birds around the planet or helping <laughs> birds move around the planet on 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 boats, for instance, or even, you know, uh, in, in planes, which is a few records of. You know, the book is quite unique. It's sort of a family-by-family you know, family breakdown of exceptional records and especially, you know, potential for vagrancy. Do you think it's really useful to take this sort of 30,000-foot view of this phenomenon? Even, even though there's lots of different reasons why birds can move around, there's something useful in saying, like, here's, here's vagrancy as a, you know, a, as a whole phenomenon. How do we explain it? Uh, yes, yeah, so the, the idea was that there had been, you know, there have been previous other books which have focused on, on regional avifaunas, mm -hmm. so the sort of the, the Steve Howell's book, the North yeah, America, yeah, love that uh, and then uh, other books looking at uh, the European avifauna. And it's in many ways, sort of the rest of the world's been kind of neglected, but yeah. those books have come out, and especially in the last sort of 10, 15 years with, you know, growth of, of, of birder communities, you know, throughout the world, including in the tropics, we're suddenly seeing 
far more records of out-of-range birds. So that's, and the ability for them to access that information, all these journals available online, all this information to be searchable, the advent of the eBird databases suddenly meant we yeah. have this global overview. And uh, I do quite a lot of work on sort of bird migration on in the tropics as well. And, you know, we have this pervasive assumption of residency in many tropical mm-hmm. birds, which has been shown not to be true. And lots of tropical birds are migrants. And as a result, lots of them are vagrants as well. How amazing has it been to have these sort of databases come online in the last 10, 15 years? Like it's been it's been incredible as a hobby birder like myself just to be able to like get on eBird and say, what is the furthest east record of mountain bluebird or something like that? I mean, this stuff is now easily searchable, easily accessible to everyone. And of course, you know, the interest in it is going to going to explode, you know, in the same sort of way. Yeah, I think it, well, it's absolutely groundbreaking. It's an incredible time mm-hmm. to be alive, to be as an ornithologist, because yeah. of, again, these, these huge distance science databases, but also then all the remote sensing products we have now as well yeah, to try and yeah. make sense of this. I mean, you know, when I sort of started my undergrad career, you know, it was all still had to go into a library to physically search through journals. <laughs> and nowadays, you know, it's just, you know, we've got full genome, you know, we're looking at full genomes fairly soon for all bird species, distribution maps, you know, understanding of trends, you know, just the sort of information you know, sort of mind boggles, really. Why are some families of birds, I guess, more prone to vagrancy than others? What are the sort of characteristics of a bird that make it likely to turn up in odd places? Uh, so foremost is uh, migratory, uh, or mm-hmm. whether or not species are migratory, basically. If you are a migrant, then you're far more likely to show up you know, extra limitry, or at least a long way extra limitry. That's yeah. not to say that resident birds never show up as migrants, as vagrants, which they which they can do. But you know, if you imagine you're a migratory bird, and especially a long distance migratory bird, you know, imagine if your migration takes you, you know, seven thousand kilometres away from you know, your breeding range to your wintering range, then you know, a fairly small deviation in your inherited your migrator orientation might take you, you know. 7,000 kilometers out of range quite quickly. <laughs> right. uh, in, in resident species, we simply don't see those sorts of distances regularly traveled by birds, and hence, hence we don't tend to see these huge movements. But we can still look at, even amongst resident species, there's still a long tail of dispersal distances. So uh, although a resident species, you know, uh, once it's uh, sort of fledged the nest and at the end of the breeding season, it's wandering around trying to find somewhere to set up its territory for the next year. And obviously, most birds don't go that far. But when you start looking at ringing or banding recoveries, you see eventually get this long tail. So even resident species can end up, you know, moving quite a long way, but but never at the sort of high frequency which which vagrant species yeah. do as well. Yeah, you know, it is also sort of interesting how even within families, there are species that are more prone to this behavior than even like their closest relatives. You know, for a for a North American perspective, um, there was just a hepatic tanager that turned up in Ontario, Southern Ontario, which is pretty, pretty far out there. The species has been recorded in Eastern Canada before, but, you know, not very often. But when you think of other, you know, Paranga tanagers, uh, Western tanager is a very common vagrant in, um, in the Eastern part of North America. Um, but those two are, are super closely related, but yet one is, I guess one is more migratory and one is more resident. But they're, they're very closely related. They have two completely different behaviors when it comes to, and, and possibilities when it comes to, to vagrancy. So it's just really interesting how that kind of manifests in, in individual families, in individual genera. Yeah, indeed. And you can look at, I guess you can look at the migration span, but also population size as well. And it's, 
yeah. We, we yeah. need to remember some of the Western species are often quite a lot, well, uh, a lot less numerous in, in, in global terms as well. So you, you kind mm. of expect fewer vagrants. And then you, you can even find, you know, some species with quite small populations in the desert southwest, which seemingly don't move that far, but which have records, you know, amazing extra records, thinking of, yeah. is, is it... Um, to get the vireo from texas black cat vireo oh black cat vireo yeah yeah, so, uh, yeah so there's what there's a there's a crazy record up around the great lakes if i recall correctly. yeah so yeah. There's, there are these crazy records from these species which seem to be almost non-migratory but then when you look mm-hmm. sort of, you dive in actually they do they do move but then you wouldn't expect many records of vagrants because the number of vagrants ought to be roughly proportional to population size as well to, yeah to these species yeah that's true you know, it's also interesting that the places where they live, you know, the desert southwest, speaking in ter- North American terms, obviously, um, there are fewer birds there, but they're more, you know, beholden to environmental changes. They have to suffer through droughts, um, things like that. And therefore, they might be more inclined to move, you know, when conditions are not favorable for them, yeah. as opposed to a, a Western tanager, which, um, you know, vagrates more commonly. But Generally speaking, its its breeding range is not in a place that's going to go through those sort of environmental extremes. Yeah. So there's there's two things to unpack there. So one of which yeah. is kind of this these exogenous pressures. So these external, mm-hmm. you know, extreme climate events might drive like what we call sort of escape movements. And you get escape movements with extreme cold spells. You know, so um, sort of alpine, if you like, species may move down slope, or or, or in very hot spells, desert species might might move to the edge of the range, you know, for instance, or, you know, a lot of desert species often move around anyway in, in search of, uh, or being nomadic, in search of food resources. But something else which we think, and this is completely hypothetical, which might expect some of these sort of arid land birds, or, or that fact may affect any of these species, which are real habitat specialists, is that if you've got sort of a pair nesting at the edge of their range, mm-hmm. and then those, uh, you know, they, that pair produces chicks, those chicks go off, in their, in their first year, or if they're migrants, when they come back, they're searching for a suitable habitat. If they return to their natal area, and that's quite close to an ecotone, the border of one habitat from the other one, they may disappear across that ecotone, out into habitat which isn't suitable, and then they just start wandering, presumably, because they're looking yeah, for suitable habitat. For so them. you yeah. could easily get sort of trapped then in just the wandering sort of for a long time, you know, trying to find suitable habitat, basically. If the birds sort of fail to course correct and move back, then... Yeah. You know, they can sort of get lost. And we kind of expect these birds to be able to then find small habitat patches by this wandering behaviour, but it might also predispose them to vagrancy. But again, that's a sort of a hypothesis of ours, which hasn't been tested, but kind of seems intuitive to me. And we get sort of desert species wandering in Europe like this as well. And Yeah, I mean, there was a, you know, the famous Paula's Sandgrouse uh, movement, I guess, is one of the, maybe a more famous uh, example of that happening. And, uh, you know, you're, you're explaining that, and the first thing that pops to my mind is the stellar sea eagle that is currently, I guess, I assume, still currently in the eastern, uh, in eastern Canada or in New England. It seemed to like wander all over the continent and eventually turned up in a place that is more or less similar to its natal area in Northeast Asia. Um, and who knows how long it's going to stay there because it's sort of in a place that's very similar to the place that it came from. Has that bird upended or confirmed anything that you have suspected about how vagrant birds, uh, where they end up? Well, I think just as you mentioned, I mean, it's a bird which is seems to have been more or less at a correct latitude and a correct sort of physiognomy at the right sort of habitat type. And it's obviously finding food. It's surviving okay, But, Mm -hmm. you know, presumably it continues to wander because it wants to find another stellar sea eagle. 
And presumably right. it's not going to settle because it's going to continue wandering to find another stellar seagull. And, and obviously, unless it backtracks, you know, to Chukotka or Kamchatka or whatever, that, that's not going to happen unless there's another vagrancy yeah. event. And obviously that's very likely to happen in our lifetime, but over geological timescales, well, well, these things right. do happen. And that's, you know, how we get these sort of transcontinental dispersal events and, uh, and why we still get regular gene flow, you know, between the, the, the whole Arctic and the Neartic to the old and new world, if mm. you like. For various species, I mean, things like pintail, there's, there's regular movement yeah. between North America and Europe, which is why pintail hasn't speciated. Whereas other, other yeah. groups, oh. like we, movements of widgeon is lower, so we have different species on either side of the Atlantic, for instance. Yeah, that, that is really interesting because it gets the, the, the ability of an individual bird to move great distances, uh, but also effectively be unseen to observers because it's more or less identical to... Uh, the bird that would be in North America, you know, who would who would know if a North American pintail ended up in in Eurasia? You, you wouldn't. I, I I recall a study where some researchers put trackers on great egrets uh, here in here where I live in North Carolina, and some of the birds ended up wandering really widely, like all the way into the Caribbean, down to Cuba, all the way across the Lesser Antilles. Um, you would never expect an individual bird to do that because the great egrets that we have here in the Southeast United States look more or less identical to the great egrets that are all across the Americas and the old world for that matter. Uh, how would you know that these individual birds are doing that if you can't observe them as individuals? It's got to be kind of, uh, uh, it's a black box essentially. Yeah, I think mean, the only way you can slightly get at that is if you had really good sort of genetic sequencing of birds from across the range, you could probably eventually right. find this signal. But I mean, it'd be very hard to find. It's also true of things like osprey and, and peregrine, mm -hmm. for which sure. there are records in the Middle Atlantic and even, even records of, of banded peregrines from North America recovered in Europe. So we know these movements happen, but they probably happen a lot more frequently than, than, than we think they do. So. Yeah, especially for a bird that is capable of traveling long distance like an osprey or a, or a peregrine falcon for sure. Um, yeah, in addition to being a, a researcher with a professional interest in, in vagrancy, you're also on the British Ornithological Records Committee, um, which gets to the whole idea of documentation, right? That's sort of the other side of the coin when it comes to vagrants. Uh, you want to make sure that people are being accurate in their observations so that you can use this sort of research in whatever manner that you're doing so. What do birders need to know about documenting these birds and, and what is something that perhaps they miss? Uh, well, so, I mean, the, the whole sort of field of documentation of rare birds has, has changed sort of immensely, you know, since yeah. I've been a birder. I'm sort of just, you know, just turned 40 a few years ago. And, you know, when I first started, most rare birds in the UK were, were not documented. There wasn't photos yeah. of the majority of, of records. And now there is. In fact, there's not only photos, there's now, you know, sort of video, sound recordings, and yeah. quite frequently DNA, DNA <laughs> evidence as well. So, you know, we've, it's been a huge sea change in, 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 in record submissions. And something that's really struck me has been that still a lot of the new birds, the British first around the last few years, have been initially misidentified. You know, yeah. things like a long-billed mural, which was, you know, a little orc or a, a red-footed falcon, which is an amur falcon. Some of these species are quite hard. An eastern crown warbler, which was a, identified as a yellow-brown warbler. And they've been re-identified from, from photos. So I think actually we still probably miss most rare birds. You know, yeah. some we end up with false positives, things that we think are rare and aren't. But I think most of the time people sort of do see rare birds and don't identify them. Uh, yeah. And obviously most rare birds never get seen at all, depending on where you are. And if, you, if you're on somewhere like Feral, you know, in or Cape May, perhaps a quite high percentage are, 
you know, are seen identified. But I think in most places, even in, in, in the UK, which is one of the most sort of intensely birded places in the world, you know, most rare birds aren't detected. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it still it remains sort of a gold standard, right, having that documentation, because we're all fallible. Everyone can make mistakes. That's, you know, mm-hmm. the beginner to, to the best birder. And there's lots of birds over the years which have been reported as something and seen by scores of people here and subsequently turned out not to be that species. So having documentation just gives us an objective, you know, element to something that we can say, you know, someone else can, can look at that information afterwards. And this goes, doesn't just go for, for rare bird occurrences and vagrants, but also when... Uh, when you're looking towards rediscoveries of some lost bird or whatever, it just, you know, it just it does seal the deal, if you like, and, and provides an objective. Yeah. Uh, so it's not she says or he says or right. I've seen something. It's, you know, a piece of information that we, we can look at and, and revisit, you know, many years after the fact. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about the photograph, you know, the rise of photographs is that I think that bird records committees, both here in North America and in the UK, have had a reputation for a very long time of being very skeptical and very conservative in their reports, and and justifiably so. You want to be sure. But, you know, I think one of the interesting things that has happened is that as people have gotten better at getting photographs and, and documentation of these birds, I think that we've sort of had to broaden our conception of what is possible, uh, because we have absolutely seen some some completely bonkers records of birds that have turned up that maybe in the past, had they not been photographed, we wouldn't necessarily have accepted. Do you think that bird records committees sort of have to, I don't know, take, you know, consider things, consider more things now? Like you have to consider a record that you otherwise might have thought was, you know, dismissed out of hand. Do you have to take that into account more now because of what we have learned about vagrancy just in general? Yeah, I think so. I think it's more, it's less almost the images. It's more just our knowledge of the life histories of different species. And I think we've sort of come with various sort of biases. Committees are often biased against waterfowl, for instance. And, you know, Mm -hmm. with a good reason to an extent, because ducks are frequently kept in captivity, but ducks are also among the the longest distance migrants. And we've we've started building up this portfolio of of ways to sort of prove vagrancy, be that banding recoveries or or stabilisotopes or or tracking devices. And and many species have, you know, massively surprised us about their capacity for movement. And obviously that does make it problematic because there are a number of species, for instance, on our category D, which we can't hold a single individual up and saying, well, this individual is definitely a vagrant. But there seems right. to be a signal for vagrancy amongst a whole host, host of records. So that's quite infuriating for birders when we sort of don't <laughs> accept a species, even though yeah. it seems obvious that there's, there's vagrancy happening. But it, I guess we are here hamstrung by this idea of having to have a first record, which we have very high confidence in. And then the sort of floodgates open there and everything else that right. comes afterwards gets accepted. And everyone else that, met, that had an older record doesn't, which seems unfair, but that's just the way committees work, I guess. Yeah, I've, I mean, just in terms of North American birding, I've seen that happen with uh, gray-like goose and common shell duck and, uh, you know, gargany to some extent, barnacle goose, oh, a lot of waterfowl, incidentally, because, you know, as you say, they are kept commonly in captivity. But when these birds show up at certain times of year, when you can sort of expect maybe more than another time of year that a vagrant is going to turn up, you know, and you know, in spring or whatever, all, all of our gargany records in interior North America are like clustered around the late late April, early May, which totally makes sense if you're looking at a wild population of birds showing up. I, you know, I've served on bird records committees. I, um, I 
I've tried to push people in this direction a little bit more, but you're right. It does take time and it does take sort of a critical mass of records to be able to say, look, this is obviously happening. We can't, we can't ignore it any longer. I think it also relates to population sizes. So just as you mentioned, yeah. sort of barnacle geese and the case with Ross's geese as well. So we recently mm. sort of accepted Ross's goose in the UK and that bird has obviously increased massively. You know, the, the chances of vagrancy yeah. of that bird in the 50s are totally different from what the chances are now. Yeah, in the same way, the barnacle true. goose has also changed. And these big increases in geese numbers would be associated with increased rates of vagrancy. Yeah, you would expect it for sure. Yeah. Do you think that this the sort of similar phenomena are at work in similar sorts of ways in non-bird organisms that we're sort of missing? Uh, so in the UK, there's quite a big obsession with sort of moth trapping and, and moths uh-huh. are a, a group which we, there's obviously lots of species and, and lots and lots of vagrancy. And they're also a very vagile species, something with a very high capacity for dispersal. So we find lots of vagrants. Marine mammals, another group which, yeah. you know, seemingly have a, you know, a vast capacity for vagrancy, um, sort of from seals and pinnipeds and allies as well. Uh, also the case, you know, terrestrial mammals, less so, but then we think about that sort of resident even though it's a resident species an example um when i sort of give a lecture about this to, to students is i may just steer away from birds once because i give too many bird associated <laughs> lectures but to mention a, a mountain lion record from i think it was yeah. from the, the black hills in dakota i think and then it mm-hmm. ended up wandering all the way to connecticut you know and became like the first you know mountain lion in eastern north america for you know a huge, you know, yeah. a huge, a huge many, long many time. Years, yeah. <laughs> so that that's an instance there of you know that that sort of long tail to dispersal where most individuals might move a few tens of kilometres and this one you know sort of walk for thousands. So yeah. it must occur in other groups. It's just that you know birds are just special in that sense that there's so many people looking for them and because yeah. they have this ability to to navigate the world which which you know actively in a way that most of the groups can't. Even with butterflies and moths, they're still often really sort of weather weather driven you know you need that's true you need the warm front or whatever to bring up mediterranean moss to the uk or even fast moving uh, transatlantic um wave depressions which might bring us red ivorias and black poles sometimes bring us monarchs in the autumn although again that's become a much rarer phenomenon now that the monarchs have crashed so much and you know there's obviously also this culture in birding of evaluating finding rare birds and and documenting them that is not yet maybe <laughs> there in um in other taxa, for sure. What in your mind is the most extraordinary example of vagrancy that you've either encountered personally or you encountered while researching this book? God, that's a tough question. I, I'm sure, <laughs> I think I must have said five or six times in the book, uh, I think this, this is one of the most amazing examples of vagrancy. Uh, to pick an example which isn't in the book, which I saw recently on Twitter uh, via eBird, was a record of prothonotary warbler war yeah. practically yeah, in, in South Georgia. So, yeah. you know, there's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's no limit. I've seen something else we didn't publish. Like somebody sent me a record, sent me a record, like cedar waxwing on Hawaii recently. I mean, this sort of goes on and on and on, to be honest, of, of absolutely crazy things. Uh, and then we, then we hit sort of records, which, so it, as the BIOC recently had to deal with the record of Padderfield Pippet, which mm-hmm. if it was a wild bird is, is perhaps the craziest record of any bird, essentially sort of resident tropical Pippet species, which turned up in in, in op- late October in southwest Britain, you know, county called Cornwall, which is sort of synonymous with rare bird records at a, at a peak time of year to find re- rare bird records. But the species we just wouldn't expect to turn up as a vagrant, and you know, which was thousands and thousands of kilometres out of range and is a resident. And so that yeah. bird was caused a lot of heartache for birders. A lot of people went for it, 
everyone kind of assumed it's going to be a vagrant because it's a pipit. We sort of have yeah, the reverse right. reverse effect of ducks. Yet, yeah. you know, you look at the biology of that bird and it just seems, you know, so incredible that it could possibly be a vagrant. So then you start reaching to other options, which are, you know, could it be an escape from captivity? Again, there wasn't much evidence for that. Could it have come over on a boat or even on a plane? Well, again, not impossible. Right now, as we, as we, as we chat, there's a, an American pipit aboard um, a, a research vessel traveling from Greenland to, to Scotland. <laughs> out in the mid-Atlantic, and it's been there a couple of days now, so I've been, been following that bird's progress on Twitter. And, you know, we know that, that humans can move birds around the planet, and yeah. sheath bill records from Taiwan and from Cornwall, etc., and South Africa and various places. So, you know, the, the possibilities are endless when it comes to potentially the ship assistance of birds, and that, that can go beyond what a bird is physically capable of, of flying. And those sort of physical limits are quite obvious when you start looking at which sort of North American species reach Europe and the things right. we most frequently get are the, are the long-winged birds which put on large sort of deposits of fat so they can some of these things like black black poles migrate you know in mm-hmm. two and a half days straight 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 down the North Atlantic all the way down to um, to Suriname or whatever you know versus something that you know, we've got a record of brown thrasher in the UK and it, it, I can't see that bird flying for three days non-stop across the North Atlantic and I'm sure that yeah. bird would have been yeah you know, on a made that travel on a boat but Obviously, we can't prove that, and we have that bird there. But equally, yeah, there's other species which we are not accepted. Things like spotted toeys, there's a record of that from the UK, huh. which is rejected, and the record of eastern toeys is accepted. And I don't think either of those species really are likely to be physically capable. Lark sparrow as well. So, you know, it makes it very hard to, to, to make these decisions, really. Yeah. I, I've, actually, I've actually seen spotted toey out on a pelagic trip one time out over the ocean. So... Yeah, wow, yeah. <laughs> it was in California, yeah. Um you, you spend some time at the end looking at what you call vagrancy in the area of global change. Uh, obviously the other side of the vagrancy coin is the concept of twitching or rarity chasing. It's it's huge in the UK, it's pretty big at least on the state and provincial level here in the in North America as well. Um do you see any conflict between this changing world and how birders approach that aspect of their hobby? I think so. This sort of growing movement here, sort of uh, of lower low carbon birding, essentially. You know, mm-hmm. thinking about you know what's this carbon cost of uh, of trips, and there's um, a book coming out uh, fairly soon um, uh, on on the subject. Basically, I contributed a, a chapter two on what well, fact talking about impacts of climate change on Amazonian birds, but also sort of relating that back a bit to sort of you know my own sort of decisions about about birding these days. So I think that is an emerging issue. Uh, and I think we should, you know, should take stock of uh, of the fact that quite a lot of chasing birds can be quite high carbon. But there are ways and means of uh, reducing that impact. You know, from certainly from not flying to see rare birds to to using public transports increasingly here, and to also just remembering that the rarity rarity is always relative, right? I mean, most birds are, are rare rare somewhere, and you know, being on the edge of the range versus being miles away. I mean, I live. Sort of in the middle of Britain, in an area which is horrendous or terrible for finding rare birds, but there's there's locally rare stuff, and you know, I go to the coast, I might find a redback shrike, and, and and finding a sandling here it is of a similar magnitude of of, um, uh, of relative rarity, if you like. So I guess it's always a case of readjusting horizons, and then you know, trying to travel with a lower carbon footprint. Along the same lines, do you take comfort in the ability of birds to? take advantage of, of changing world in, in really novel ways when you look at the way the the world is changing and you look at this sort of study of vagrancy 
Yeah, so um, I guess there are certain species that have been sort of winners in the Anthropocene, species which yeah. have sort of piggybacked on our own success. I mean, gulls are a good example, and we've yeah. seen, you know, gulls adapting and changing their behaviour. So lesser black gulls in Europe used to be very migratory, used to all move down, most of them to, to winter in, in, in uh, West Africa. Uh, and then a lot of, lot of them become resident and been using tips in winter associated with a large population increase, which has meant that birds that were breeding in Iceland subsequently spread to Greenland. And from Greenland, they've ended up forming an entirely new migration route to, to winter in, in North America and yeah, now getting as place, far yeah. down as you know northern South America even. We, yeah. we published the first record from Brazil, for instance, for the species. So, you wow. know, there's been... You know, some quite rapid change, and that does suggest to me that you know some species at least can adapt, you know, to this change in the Anthropocene, and especially with, I mean, as the climate you know becomes increasingly erratic and uh, and gets warmer, we're going to have to see species ranges shifting uh, in order to to track these uh, climate niches, and you know, vagrants essentially may be the sort of forerunners of colonization for many of these species, and it's been argued by other other researchers recently that you know we should confer on the protection, you know, these species as well, which hasn't always happened. There have been mm-hmm. records of vagrants in, in New Zealand and Australia, uh, a Nicobar pigeon and I think a rose crowned fruit dove on, on New Zealand, which were one, one of them, the fruit dove was euthanized and the Nicobar pigeon was stuck in a cage in captivity, essentially, as a sort of a biosecurity risk. But this is essentially mm-hmm. is, is a natural process and is, yeah. is the way that, that, that species expand their ranges. Alex Lees is a researcher at Manchester Metropolitan University. The book, written with James Gilroy, is Vagrancy in Birds. You can find it wherever books are sold, including the ABA's partner, Beauty of Books. Uh, Do check it out. It's a fascinating look at at one of our favorite bird phenomena. Um, Thanks for your time, Alex. This was a a really great conversation. All right. Thanks for chatting with me. It's been great. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. You get a lot of benefits, and I'm going to bang this drum again. One of the coolest things that we've done recently is what we put all of the old ABA publications online in a searchable archive for ABA members. That is 40 years of bird-specific articles from our magazines, including great write-ups of different places to go birding, articles on difficult ID conundrums. I mean, there's just so much cool stuff there and it's all for members. You can get information about joining the ABA at aba.org slash join. Some special shout outs this week and I do apologize in advance if I mispronounce some some folks' names. Um, John Marsak of Walnut Creek, California. Ray and Meredith Pratt of Wallingford, Vermont. Ross Quatch of Radley, Abington on Thames in the UK. David Rios of Greenville, Texas and Aaron Whitaker of San Diego, California, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. It really means a lot to see these names on this list every single week. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who suggests that the Red Wing and the Field Fair in Northern Alaska should be called Kia and Vic. Technical production is by John Lowry, who wonders why no one has thought to name the stellar sea eagle wandering around Eastern Canada, Maritime. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who can't decide whether or not the South Texas Bat Falcon deserves to be called Anna or not, given that it will almost certainly not be the last rare bird to be found at Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association, and on Twitter as ABA. You know, you don't just have to name rare birds. You know, For instance, my neighborhood red-shouldered hawks 
fledged this last week, and my family has named the chicks uh, Screamy and Omar, which is, of course, short for, oh my God, will you please shut up? They're, they're loud, you see. Questions, comments can come to podcast at aviated.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week. <laughs>